Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Helen Keller once said, alone we can do so little, together we can do so much. Welcome to Seeds, Talking Purpose. This is Stephen Moe. Today we get to speak with Franca Bulo about the value of collaborating across disciplines. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Franca. If you talk to the people you know, you feel safe. Yeah. You have your circle of friends, your network. Yeah. But that might not be the inspiring conversation that yes. gets you through the next couple of years and inspires you to do something that you haven't done before. Yeah. Which yeah. makes you feel alive much yeah. more than just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah. Now, in next week's episode, we'll be speaking with Leighton Evans, who's the chief executive of the Rata Foundation. And there's about 30 other interviews in the back catalog, so you might want to check those out as well. Now, let's get into the interview with Franca. It's a pleasure to welcome Franca Bulo, who's an environmental social scientist. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me. On this show, what we do is talk about purpose and what people are doing. But in order to do that, I find it's helpful to go back to the start of a person's life mm-hmm. and understand where they're from in order to work out what, why they're doing what they're doing now. Mm-hmm. So do you mind telling us a little bit about your background? Yeah. Um, so I'm German, as you can probably hear from the accent. And um, my background, I'm a political scientist, but I also studied English, English literature mm. and did um, a lot of dancing, acting, singing. So it's always been partially a creative life and partially a life dedicated to research and curiosity and and understanding what people want and what they need and what what motivates them. And based on our, because we chatted before we started recording, there were many topics that we had in common. So I think Mm, this interview could go many different directions. But just thinking about your childhood and the place that you were from, can you describe that? Like what, was it a city or was it countryside or? Um, Countryside. So I was born in Bonn, which used to be the capital um, because my grandparents were both in politics and my mom was working as a journalist. My dad was working as a doctor. And then they had me and decided they wanted to have more kids and they wanted to raise them somewhere in the country. So we moved up north um, in Germany and that's where my two brothers were born. Right. Next to the cows. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. it was literally a farm it area? Was cl- it was a farm area. Yeah. Not too many people around. Um, we could just play, and my mom didn't have to worry about the cars or anything. Right. Yeah. Your childhood memories is that a lot of it is being outside and being playing outside, with your brothers and playing with my brothers, building huts, building shelters. Um, yeah, we were always out and about. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Wild, <laughs> wild kids. Yeah, climbing trees, tree houses. Still a big passion um, of mine. Um, mm-hmm. Being outside. Yeah. Mm. And how would you describe yourself as a child? Like think of yourself as a 10-year-old. What sort mm. of things did you enjoy at that age? Uh, um, quite boyish, I think. Being outdoors was very important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of sports. I did ballet five times a week, um, mm. athletics mm-hmm. and handball. And always together with my brothers um, and friends. Um, yeah, quite active. So I'm... I do need my time and I've always needed that um, because I love to read and to just move into fantasies. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I I was always an active kid. 
Yeah. And we, we talked briefly about your parents before we started recording and yeah. your name. Do you want to just describe yeah. what that is and what it means? <laughs> <laughs> I found that was quite interesting. Yeah. Oh, well, my parents named me um, Franca Angela, which means the freedom-loving angel, which is, yeah, it's quite cute. <laughs> um, they, yeah, I was their first kid. Mm. And I think they didn't expect to have children. And then right. they had me and they mm. were really happy about that. <laughs> oh, so you were a welcome addition. <laughs> yeah. yeah, 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 very yeah. much so. And did you say one of them was a journalist? Yeah, my mum um, worked as a journalist. She studied um, dance and German and then t- to be a teacher, actually, but then never wor- worked as a teacher, um, but oh. loved journalism and oh, okay. uh, yeah, stories and theatre and acting. You know, she's a very temperamental, emotional person and yep. very outgoing yeah. Yeah. So that would have been a big influence on oh, you as a. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> she's an idol. You know, she yeah. just, I admire her. Yeah. She's really cool. What, what is it about her that you admire the most? Oh, the smile and, mm. you know, this, the passion for life. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember coming home from school and my mum would sing like loudly to music and cook. And then when you enter the house, she would ask you to dance. <laughs> and, you know, right. she'd, she would always be playful. It was never never this rules 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 thing that i experienced in a lot of my friends houses but it was playful we had a hammock in the living room my oh. dad played the guitar and the piano my parents would dance and sing with us so yeah a big influence on on my life and my happiness i think yeah what was it that had shaped them in that way do you think was it their own childhoods or what, yeah. what was the origin of that i don't i can't really say because yeah. their parents are quite conservative both of them um and i guess you can probably tell from the ages um, that they've been in the war. So my parents' parents were shaped by that experience. Yes. And my parents are so much more hmm, open Mm. than my grandparents are and than my grandparents could be, actually. Right. um, Based on the societal and... Yeah, influences. Isn't it fascinating to think about things like the war and the influence that it had on an entire generation? Oh, my God, yes, absolutely. And it still has on on us, on me and my friends. Of course, we we wondered when we were younger and we started reading um, and learning about the war what our grandparents had done, and you start asking questions. And Mm. some grandparents talk about it and others don't. Mm. Yeah. When do you start asking those questions? Uh, at your teenage or No, we started even? when we were really young. Yeah. Um because my granddad talked about it a right. lot. Um on my on my dad's side. Yeah. Um he's really involved. He used to be in Siberia um in a in a camp um as a prisoner for a really long time and then became a lawyer afterwards and started to set things right, I guess. Um mm. Yeah, he was so young, you know, when the war started. Right. He was one of those really young kids who got sent to the Eastern Front um, oh, when Germany okay. was about to lose the war. Oh. So they send all these young soldiers um, to fight. Wow. Yeah. And then he ended up in a prison camp. Yeah, he did for seven years. Wow. Mm-hmm. So you had quite a few different influences in your I life did. then, at, you know, from <laughs> your grandparents' generation yeah. and talking about their experiences and yeah. then your parents' Because mm-hmm. I do wonder if your parents' attitude and experience was sort of a reaction to oh, it the was. previous generations. And it was. It was a combination, though, of the mm. two. Because, you know, being a journalist in a government um, mm. environment like my mom was, of course, you had to be aware of the um, Stasi, so Eastern European spies that were all over the place, um, <laughs> really, and that shaped her. But she was still this very, or she still is, this very happy person. Mm. Um, 
very positive, mm -hmm. but she'd been through a lot、um, when she was young already. Yeah.、Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. And so, just bring us up a little bit.、Mm. You know, take us through sort of high school years. Yeah. What sort of subjects did you enjoy? You know, at high school.、Time? All of them. <laughs> I'm terribly curious. Right. It's just it's always been like that.、Um, and everybody in my family, we all love to learn and to study. So it was never it was never hard. It was always fun、yeah. and playful.、Um, I didn't really have a favorite subject, but. I think I spend most of my time reading,、um, mm. and so. So that was a passion、English. for you. The reading yes, was. It always、yeah. was stories.、Yeah. In terms of the, I guess the subjects that you were studying,、mm. did that give a hint of what you're doing now, or was it, was there any tracing back there?、Uh, maybe, yeah.、Um, so I, I took a lot of the sciencey classes because I wanted to be a doctor. And I started actually after school. I started studying medicine, and then changed my courses because well, I couldn't really handle patients dying. And I knew that、mm. if I continued to do this, I would have to be okay with this.、Mm. Um, and books don't die, so I went back to the passion for books and started studying literature and political science. Right. And that that choice that was the that was the key thing, was it the the, the patient the patients? It was. I was working in a hospital. Right.、Um, and one of my Oh well, he wasn't really my patient, but a patient died,、yeah. and it upset me. And it was、um, at the same time it was normal, and it was this very curious sensation of accepting it as a normal phenomenon,、mm. and saying, "Yeah, this person dies, and it's not entirely your fault. But who knows? You could have done something、mm. that could have saved this person's life, or not. But、mm. you know, at this stage, I was a student, so、yeah. now I know that I couldn't have done anything, but." Back then, it felt like that. Yeah, it's quite a big,、uh, profound influence, isn't it? When、mm. something like that happens. Yeah, it was actually my dad who said, you know, if you continue to study medicine, to me, it would feel like you're giving up on your life because you're so invested in your patients' lives. And he's a doctor, so he、oh. knew what it was going to be like. I、um, see. Yeah. Yeah. So he he was the one who pushed me to embrace something different. That's really interesting because sometimes parents will,、uh, you know. Kind of hope that their children follow their footsteps.、Uh, my parents never did. They always、right. said that they wanted three individuals and not three versions of themselves. So they wanted to encourage us to be the person that we could and could be and wanted to be.、Um, yeah, and we're all very different. All three of us. Oh, that's great. I'm a parent, and、mm. I've got young children.、Mm. What advice do you have for me about, <laughs> about how your parents achieve that? Because that's a that's a great thing to aim、yeah. for. Like, is it something that they consciously were telling you as it, as you were yeah, growing up? Yeah, they did. Yeah, it was. I think it was a combination of providing a certain stability, but also giving us a lot of freedom、mm. and flexibility. So they encouraged most of my interests、um, when I wanted to do sword fighting. My dad said, "No,、nah, this, this is this is not something." <laughs> There's a line here. <laughs> yeah, and that was just because I started reading Japanese books and I was、okay. fascinated. So、right. sometimes they would stop me, <laughs> but、yeah. but. Other times they were just encouraging. Yeah. Okay. So the key is to be encouraging to your children and and、so. what they're what they're doing. I love the word that you used before as well that you were curious. Yeah. And that's a word that I'm trying deliberately on this podcast to use. I'm、mm. hope. Well, I don't know. The listeners can tell you. I'm quite often saying things like I'm just curious,、mm. and then I'll ask a question.、Mm -hmm. And the intention behind it is hopefully the people listening will realize that it's okay to be curious and. That's what opens the doors to understanding somebody else's story.、Mm -hmm. um, so I, I love that word, and it sounds like that was a rich part of your childhood and my whole life.、Yeah. And hopefully, 
in the future hopefully as well. The rest I hope of it, I, yeah. yeah, I hope I can stay curious. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. great. So immediately after finishing the the studying medicine, you said that you're studying English literature. Is that right? Or yeah, it's a double degree. A double it was degree. a double degree. Yeah. Um, so political science and and English literature. English literature. Yeah. And why English literature? <laughs> um, it was. I think it was the love for the language and this interest in other cultures and other lives. And that program wasn't just English English lit. Mm -hmm. It was also also featured culture um, right. and, you know, just grammar and everything that I wanted to learn more about. Yeah. yeah. And at that time, um, is that when you were learning about the climate change movement and that was then having yeah. an influence well, as well? Yeah, I was already part of this um, group of people who cared for renewable energies and tried to bring them into the German energy mix. Okay. Um, and then went to the summer university and they said, oh, why don't you study political science? And you could do this. Um, you know, you can you can explore this a little bit more. And I became more and more involved. Um, went to Copenhagen as a youth delegate and, you know, just, yeah, saw that this could be a good path as well, mm. a good alternative. Yeah. And what happened next in terms of you? Did you graduate with your two double major degrees? Yeah, I and, did. Yeah. And did you know what you were going to do at that time? Um, so I thought this was just me taking a break and going back to medicine. And I talked to my professors um, at the medical faculty and said, yeah, you know, I'm going to do my bachelor's and then I'm going to come back ah. and become a doctor. <laughs> oh, okay. So basically grow up be a bit tougher and then go right. back to being a doctor. Right. And you, then you could handle the yeah, patients dying that's what or I whatever. Thought. That's I what see. I thought. But yeah. then I fell in love with it um, yeah. and and started researching and got research assistant jobs and then did my... Um, so I had a, dis a choice to make after my bachelor's. Mm -hmm. um, a professor that I'd worked with before asked me to come and join his team mm -hmm. and do my master's because he'd just been offered a professorship right. in the theories department. And... Um, I also had this physician um, at the university to go back and study medicine. And ah. so I, that was when I had to make an active choice again. I see. If I wanted to be a doctor or not. Um, yeah. And how did you go about <laughs> choosing the fork in the road? <laughs> uh, as I mostly do. I don't really like decisions, but I go with, I try and go with my gut feeling. Because mm -hmm. I think if you do what you really feel, like, you know, what feels right, um, then you can never say that was the wrong decision because it just felt right in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, I like the way you phrase that. I've often thought that sometimes it's the act of making the decision that mm. justifies the decision. Yeah, it does. Because once you've made the decision, that is the yeah. the only path yeah. that yeah. that there is. You know, you can't live with regret, can you? So, no. Yeah. And in that case, I could just learn so much from that particular professor and I really wanted that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So what was the research area that you mm. were looking into at that time? Sovereignty. Oh, and also, what what um, year are we talking about, just to uh, give us a 2012. context? 2012. Okay. That yeah. was, yeah, Sovereignty in the Transnational Constellation. Sounds a little bit wordy, wow. but yeah, yeah. Hannah so, Arendt and, yeah. So just unpack that for us a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sovereignty so, in the trans, what was it? Transnational trans <laughs> Constellation. Yeah, that's the name of the project. Right, um, okay. It's... Basically, it's about figuring out um, what we do in a situation where we move away from having the state as this one really central, powerful yeah. actor to having corporates, agencies, different nations, different countries, different sub 
national units interact with one another to shape um, society, right. to shape decisions. And then what happens to this old concept that has always been so powerful from mm. um, the time when we had a monarchy to democracy of a sovereign entity, of I a legitimate see. power governing us. And so that was a very abstract, very theoretical project wow. looking into how norms change yeah. when the reality shifts, yeah. basically. Yeah. So just putting it on a basic level, mm -hmm. Facebook is One across nations, right? Oh, and, yeah. And the revenue or Apple or whatever, mm. these m giant multinational corporations, which probably have more revenues than many countries. Yeah. It's that sort of how does it all fit together? That's what you're thinking through. And what sort of an impact do they have on the way we make a decision, for example? Or yeah. is that legitimate, their influence? Mm. Um, and how does that change the way we look at legitimacy, for example? Yeah. How do we look at power? Power is this huge thing that, um, you know, I mm. loved looking at because mm. it's, it's, it's scary fascinating. and packing Well, it. you know, the, the statistics are crazy, but it's yeah. like the top 10 wealthiest own as much as the bottom yeah. 3 billion or yeah, something. Yeah. You know, it's it's like massive disparity that somehow the systems of the world have led mm -hmm. to um, a, an individual owning billions of dollars yeah. like and you just kind of look at it and go how is that at all equitable yeah. you know yeah. how is it even possible to argue that it's okay that yeah. these billion people here have as much as this one individual mm -hmm. and i get the argument that that one individual probably worked really hard had an amazing idea or whatever but still you know mm -hmm. that there's such disparity was it some yeah. looking at some of those concepts as well these aspects of it because you know there's a what you're describing there's a difference between working towards a public good mm. or a private good mm. and the dynamic of the private good and different interests and mm. those that are represented within those interest groups mm, they work towards different goals yeah. but if you look at a public good sphere then you don't necessarily favor the richest person or you wouldn't favor the richest person. Right. <laughs> you know. Yeah. And if you could if you could start with a blank piece of paper, it probably yeah. wouldn't work the same way, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. So what were some of the um, research aspects of that that you were involved in? Um, was there much literature on the topic or did were you Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, reading lots of theories on, on sovereignty and mm. the origin of the idea of sovereignty, which mm. goes back to, you know, monarchies and actually God. It's a religious concept, right. um, having this power vested into one human being by right. God. That was the, the, the yeah, the legitimate So we're going right back source. to, like, we're going way, way back we're to way Adam back. being way, given way the back. ability to name oh, yeah. the animals. Like, oh, Yeah, if you want yeah. to, you can go back as far as that yeah. and you can you can look at french monarchies um and old texts and old scripts from that time mm. um and mm. the way they went about explaining why this one monarch was in place and why this person had the power to do what he did back then right um and what yeah. sort of things were you finding <laughs> it's a fascinating topic yeah 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 um yeah basically god was a source of of that, you know, this analogy of why you were in power, why it was your decision that had the most impact on a whole population, on a whole society. Yeah. And then the way that moved over to representative democracies. Yeah. And how people and their vote actually were the the 
essential elements of giving you this power yeah. again. So different forms of legitimization again. Yeah. Isn't it fascinating how you got the French Revolution going on mm. and you've got the American <laughs> independence? Mm -hmm. Like there was a lot of change happening in that, like in a relatively short period of decades, wasn't it? Yeah. And different dynamics and different ways of, of explaining and making sense of where you are and why you do the things that you do. Mm -hmm. It's the same when you look at dynamics nowadays, mm -hmm. you know, theoretical texts now look at why don't we have a global state? Why do we have to have state structures? Mm -hmm. Especially when you look at refugee movements mm -hmm. and then a lot of the theoretical literature in political science looks at that or mm. multi-scale, multi-level dynamics. Mm. So it's not just one state, but it's right now, as I said in the beginning, there's so many different people mm. that have an impact and mm. they're part of a decision-making sphere. And how do we go about this? How do we make it fair, as you said before? Mm. How do we make sure that we're not doing something where just one's, one person's interest um, shapes the final outcome? Yeah. All right. I'm waiting for the answer. What's the answer? <laughs> oh, I'm hoping. I'm hoping that we'll get there. Yeah. Unfortunately, the dynamics don't always look like we're considered with, you know, that, yeah. like we're very considerate or that we're looking at fairness. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember um, in university um, studying... Africa mm. and looking at the lines of the countries mm -hmm. and looking at how straight they are, you know, like it's yeah, literally yeah, yeah. somebody got a ruler and we'll go from mm -hmm. this point to this point and down this way. And, yeah. and then you think about the ethnic groups of people or the tribes or whatever and how the line went shoof, right yeah. through. And yeah. then you look 100 years, 200, whatever years later and the different problems that that caused really because yeah. it wasn't taking into account the 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 natural groupings of people i guess yeah and trying to yeah. understand what that does yeah to a yeah. person's life to a society mm. to the dynamics in society yeah. yeah i think that's fascinating yeah no i agree and what do you think uh, just taking this topic we're going to get on to the topic that we're really meant to talk about soon <laughs> but um you know just what do you think the future holds for this? Because on the podcast, I interviewed someone named Emmeline Pat mm -hmm. Dostrom, mm -hmm. who set up Space Space here mm -hmm. in New Zealand. So they're looking at space mm -hmm. and thinking about the future of space and wanting to have it be democratized for humanity mm -hmm. rather than it being potentially somebody sending a, sending a mining vessel to, you know, a planet mm -hmm. when we have the technology to do this that the nation-state identities wouldn't take over the ownership of things outside of our little yeah. planet. Um, I'm just curious, you know, thinking about the future, what might this look like? I think there are a lot of, a lot of the things that you just said mm. make me go, oh my God, I hope that we're humble. Mm. I really hope that we can sort of... Um, nourish the capacity to care mm. because I think people are can be so competitive and it has this huge influence on the way we structure mm -hmm. our lives and we govern our decisions and we govern states and we govern space. Mm. How crazy mm. um, to reach that far. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think if you're not happy with what you have, you might end up forgetting um, the values that you might you know, that might be worth holding dear yeah. on this path forward. Yeah. 
So you're there studying and you're um, doing lots of research and things. Mm. What is the product of the research that you're doing? Was it academic papers? Yep. Is that that's what you were papers, working on? Papers, papers, conferences, workshops. Yeah. And I was working on that project, but also working on a project on freshwater governance and okay. participation. So I was working with different universities at the same time, mm. trying to make up my mind if I wanted to move into theories or more applied, again, climate change um, and mm. environmental research. Right. And uh, which which area did you end up deciding to move into? Environmental. Or environmental. And climate yeah. change, yeah. Mm-hmm. What was it that attracted you to, to that? Again, um, this wish to change something mm-hmm. and to help. <laughs> That's great, yeah. yeah. So you're studying and researching and learning a lot of things. Um, now we're sitting here in New Zealand talking. Mm. <laughs> What sort of happened to, to bring you here mm-hmm. to kind of... Yeah. I um, During my PhD, I came to Lincoln by chance, actually. I emailed a lot of professors and asked, so, you know, could I, could I maybe work with you? I love the way you do research and I like your projects. And one particular professor, Anne Brower, she emailed back and said, yep, when do you want to come? And that was right. so easy, you know, it was... And yeah. so you'd read some papers that I'd she'd read done or some something? I'd some of her or? work, okay. and I, I loved how she, again, combined the theories and the applied research, you know. Right. And often there is this divide, and people tell you you're either part of the theories department and you care about the abstract world of thinking, mm-hmm. or you're very applied. And she was both, and wow. I really liked it, and she, is, she still is both. Um, yeah. She still embraces the theoretical and the applied. So... Yeah, and then I decided, oh, yeah, cool, I want to come in January. Yeah, wow. <laughs> so um, is that is that normally the way that you find positions? Yeah. You just email people and say, like, yeah, what you're well, doing, I'd love to come. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Did you have some Skype calls and so Not get even to that. know each other or anything? I just or? send her some of my work and yep. my CV, and then she said, yep, sounds good. Okay. Come over. Right. And what did you know about New Zealand before you came? <laughs> uh, not too much. Yeah. Um. Now that I look at it, I'm actually quite happy that <laughs> I decided to come here and not go to Canada or some place else, um, other places where I applied. Yeah. Um, Why is that? Because of the passion. Mm. Again, a lot of people here care about the environment. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's a lot that can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a small country, small population, quite challenged by natural disasters. Mm-hmm. So it's a very interesting sphere, mm. interesting place to be in. Mm. Yeah. As a climate change researcher. Yeah, you know? for sure. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, obviously the earthquakes had happened yeah. quite a few years before. Mm. Did that shape your decision at all or was that a part of it or mm. not really? You, you weren't worried, I mean. I wasn't. Mm. No, I'd been in, in Tokyo before. I, um, I knew that earthquakes were, yeah. you know, of course they're scary and Germans are quite sheltered. We might have the occasional hailstorm, but that's it. <laughs> that's it, really. Um, yeah, yeah, it's on a continent and it's mm. not moving very much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, okay. And you just mentioned Tokyo there. So what had taken you to Tokyo? Was that for a conference? Or Another a... scholarship. I oh, okay. studied um, Japanese literature and Japanese yeah. there right. for three months. Oh, so okay. just a short time yeah. in between um, semesters. And where was that? In Tokyo? Or yeah, in part? Tokyo at yeah. Sofia University. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, literature on, on city development. Um, and yeah, 
that was that was awesome. It was yeah. a really nice experience. Yeah, it's a place that kind of gets into your blood, isn't it? it like does. it's. Uh, <laughs> it I, does. I meet people who've lived there because I think I may have told you about. I lived there for five years mm-hmm. in total. One year when I was twenty-one, mm-hmm. and then much later for four years in Tokyo. So one year Osaka and four years in Tokyo, and mm-hmm. it's definitely even now I can tell that my own way of thinking was shaped. Yeah. By my experience when I was twenty-one, twenty-two, mm-hmm. and the Japanese way of of being—it's yeah. kind of a strange thing to say—but they have a very soft way of interacting, yeah. and a very non-confrontational way, mm-hmm. and quite a gentle way of putting ideas out on the table mm-hmm. and testing to see if they're acceptable. Whereas in the West, I think sometimes it's the answer is yes or no. Mm-hmm. In the Japanese system, sometimes it's more like. What do you What do you think about this? Or I wonder. I had somebody explain it this way: in in the West, you'd go to your boss and you'd say, "I'd really like to go to this conference. It's happening in April. Can I have the budget to go?" And the answer is yes or no. And a Japanese style would be, you go, "I just saw this conference is coming up. It looks quite interesting. I wonder if." Someone should go to this conference, and you know, phrased in a way not asking as a yes/no answer question, more as a, you know, let's talk about it. I think it's the focus on either the individual or the society、mm. that also has an impact on the way、um, people in Japan interact.、Mm. I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do too. So, when did you arrive in at Lincoln? Was that two seventeen in January?、Okay. Yeah. yeah. So at the time of recording this, just over a year.、Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Does it feel like longer or shorter? Or?、Uh, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. Yeah. Honestly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm. Really depends. Yeah. Now、um, we've got the title of the paper that you're presenting later this year, I think, in Australia. I'm just going to read it, and I'd love for you to tell us <laughs>、yeah. about what the topic is that you're researching. Yeah. 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 Am I right? It's you reap what you sow. Mm-hmm. Disincentives for adaptation to climate change.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's part of my PhD. So it's actually not what I、um, do at the moment at Manaki Fenua,、um, but it's something that, yeah, that I really loved doing during、um, the PhD that I did back home in Germany.、Mm-hmm. Um, it's looking at what motivates people to change and the way that. States sometimes go about drafting their policies,、um, and they're very much reliant on financial incentives. So, if I asked you to, if you were a smoker, for example, if I asked you to give up smoking, and I tell you I'll give you fifty dollars if you do, it's not much of a much、mm. of a motivation, or it's actually it can be a disincentive. If I keep giving you this money, and then someday I realize, oh, I don't have that money anymore, and、mm. I'll stop giving you that money, then you might go back to smoking. You、mm-hmm. know, it takes more to motivate people to change or to embrace something that's new and might seem challenging、mm. than just a financial incentive.、Mm. So, what sort of other motivations would there be? I looked at social norms, for example, because、mm-hmm. we really care about what other people think. <laughs> and we also care about what the future holds.、Mm-hmm. We care about our children.、Mm-hmm. Um, we love. We live with other people.、Mm-hmm. So that is a very, very important component, I think, of interacting with people and of speaking、mm-hmm. to them and to their actions.、Mm-hmm. 
but we also need to understand their vulnerabilities. So what I did in this particular paper is I ran an experiment with farmers in Germany and I um, presented them with um, a model, basically, in different scenarios. I told them different stories <laughs> so to, and saw what resonated with them. And mm. um, when they felt like they were capable of doing something um, to help them face um, and tackle climate change challenges... And um, what was it that made them feel like there was actually a risk? Um, so these two things, risk, um, appraisal, coping appraisal, and looking at triggers for that. Mm. And just unpacking a little bit what you said, I'm just mm. trying to understand how it would Science work practically. <laughs> no, no, it's good. I <laughs> like it. No, it's great. But I just thinking from a practical point of view, yeah. you started just talking about somebody smoking and giving an, ins a, yeah. Yeah, an yeah, incentive yeah. of $50. Mm. So. I think what you're saying is that the way that it's framed is the key thing. That it's yeah, the story it you're telling. It is. And so if I come to you and I say, look, I know you're a smoker. Mm. If you give it up, I'll give you $50. Mm. Then that's sort of a time-bound incentive that is a monetary thing. Mm. Whereas if you come to the person and you say, look, I know you're a smoker. For the sake of your children, you will, you will have a longer, healthier life if yeah. you give up smoking and changing the norm around it? Is that sort of... That is a part of it. Right. But it's also another aspect of it is understanding what drives people's behavior and what mm. drives their intentions. I see. So the example of smoking, that's because it's part of a theory that was used in the medical field to explain why people stop smoking. And I just took that theory and said, oh, why don't we use that in environmental sciences as well? Yep. And that's protection motivation theory. And that looks at these two um, aspects of a, of a decision, mm -hmm. risk appraisal, coping appraisal. Risk appraisal means, do you know that there's a risk and how do you perceive it and how severe is that risk? Right. And the other part of it is, is actually saying, are you capable of facing that risk? And what sort of um, effective mechanisms do you know to mm. react and then around those two um, is something like social norms, for example, or the objective capacity to to do something. Mm -hmm. So is there somebody that supports you? Do you have the time, the money, the knowledge to react or not? Mm -hmm. um, and then how many people around you are also committed to, for example, stopping smoking? That All of these things form a certain dynamic mm -hmm. and can encourage you to, to change. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't like... So change is always a debatable topic, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. especially if it's top-down policy change. Right. But my argument just in that paper is understanding people is the key to change. Mm -hmm. And it's not being this top-down style um, or embracing that top-down style um, that is actually going to help us mm. transform, transition. I um, see. But it's understanding people. Yeah, it makes sense. So the practical example, you said you were asking farmers in Germany. Yep. What was it that you were presenting to them as the scenario? A just... scenario of climate change. Right. Um, so I asked them a couple of questions about their day-to-day -day life, about the farm that they work at, um, the people that they work with, um, and their experiences with different weathers. Because, of course, your experience shapes the way you perceive risks, for example. Right. Um, and then I had four different treatment groups, and I've given each treatment group a different scenario to read um, that highlights different things. One um, highlights this financial um, push and pull factor thing, mm -hmm. um, which is basically me telling them, yeah, if um, I wanted farmers to change, I would give them the right subsidies. 
and that's a, yeah the EU context. You know, farming is shaped by subsidies. About thirty six percent of your income as a farmer relies on European subsidies. Mm. So that's a reality that they know. That's my baseline. That's the status quo. Mm. And then others is this um, framing of social norms, where I talk about all of the other farmers who are doing all these amazing things to combat climate change. Mm-hmm. And then another scenario is about future generations, the sustainability of farming, feeding the world, um, the challenges that we face, but we could tackle them if we did this together. Mm-hmm. And then a fourth scenario was actually on technological development because wow. with geoengineering and all that, a lot of people think that we'll find the magic fix for all of our problems and all of the things that we've done. So... Right. That's another hope, right? We don't yeah. have to change. We can just wait for the right technology to help yeah. us. Yeah. Um, <laughs> There's something coming that will make yeah. us more efficient and we'll be yeah, able to yeah, harvest yeah. more. Yeah. And mm. I was actually quite happy that the scenarios two and three, social, social norms and mm. future, um, they resonate it with farmers the most. And it's not mm. just organic, biodynamic farmers, which is what a lot of people would assume, but mm-hmm. it was conventional farming, mm. really large farms and uh, yeah. farmers in that area as well, which was also nice, you know, because there's a lot of this dirty dairying or the dirty farmers and farmers who don't care yeah. out in the media and in people's minds, but it's actually not like that. Right. They're actually individuals <laughs> who probably do care. <laughs> of course they are. And of course they are proud of what they do yes. and they care for their children. They care for the land. They work with the land. Yeah. 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 How did you measure the um, the rankings of that number mm. two and three being higher? Like, was it a it was a on a scale of yeah, ten yeah, yeah. or something? Or so what, what, that's the the more boring part. I'm a <laughs> <laughs> I'm a quantitative political scientist. You know right. that um, I turned out to be moving from theories to statistics. I see. So that's an experiment, and it's basically. Um, a regression analysis, and I, I measured that on a Likert scale. Mm-hmm. Um, so just, yeah, modeled the different dynamics. Yeah. I love all the words that you use because I don't know what they all mean, <laughs> but it's awesome. That's <laughs> terrible. So that's something that I talk about with friends a lot because <laughs> science is actually doing a really terrible job sometimes of telling people what it is that we do. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that, it, yeah, it shouldn't be like that. But you end up using all these words. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's fine. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I get it. I get what you were doing, that number two and three. It's yeah. just that you used, what was it, the Leggett scale? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. what was the other thing? It's a different, yeah. So it's a, it's a regression analysis, yeah. yeah. But, but it's just basically I'm asking you rate this from one to seven. Right. And then you do. And then I, I yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. Feed that's, this into my model. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Just thinking about that uh, and that paper, mm. did did you come? I mean, in your conclusion, what were what were some of the things that you were drawing out, or you know, for the future? Because I'm guessing, since mm. you're, I, I get the sense that what you want to do is have an impact. You want to make a difference in the world. So I'm guessing that your conclusion. All I've read here is the abstract. <laughs> yeah. What were some of the key things that you drew out that? might actually make a difference for climate change and for farmers? Mm, I think it's different. It's basically an invitation to maybe Mm -hmm. um, rethink policy designs. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, motivational structures that could be a part of a policy. Um, And in that particular paper, of course, it's the EU context. Mm -hmm. um, And looking at subsidies that are this huge, huge part of a farmer's life mm. um yeah that's great but how do you get the academic paper into the mainstream or into the mm. decision makers hands yeah well 
means that you need to go out and talk to people, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is something that I enjoy. Again, stories, you know, yeah. I go and ask people for a story and yeah. try and understand what they do, which is why I've actually moved away from academia a little bit and I'm now working for in, for a CRI. Mm -hmm. And that's that is still research, but it means that I can be much more um, applied in the way I go about it. And I actually meet people and I can work with them. Mm. I can go out to Kaikoura, for example, and ask them, so what is it that scares you right now? Right. What are your needs? What are your asks? How can we help? And I how? See. And then I can go back and use that. And yeah, mm. hopefully as a scientist, sit on the fence between decision makers and different stakeholders and the public. Yep. Mm. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So we've kind of, we've, talked about this paper let's talk about what you're doing now because you just used the word cri which i think is crown research yeah, institute in is. new zealand oh yeah it is. um <laughs> and uh tell us about what that's doing what like how many people are there working in the area that you're working uh, and what exactly are you doing so i'm part of a of of a social science team mm -hmm. um we're called the gap team governance and policy team right and um Lancare Research has 330 staff members approximately right. um, across different sites in the whole country. Mm. Um, and what we do is we work across different projects with biophysical scientists, with policymakers, with farmers, with, yeah, with mm. anybody really, depending on the project, and mm. um, try and address different issues, different problems. Mm. In my case, a lot of them related to resilience, to climate change. Okay. Um, and also to integration mm. um, and land and water. Right. And when you're using the word resilience, what are you meaning by that? I only mm. ask because one of the other podcast episodes is about organizational resilience. Mm -hmm. So I interviewed Dr. John Vargo from, mm. uh, he was at Canterbury University, mm -hmm. and now um, he works for a, a social enterprise called Resilient Organizations. Oh, yeah. So we talked quite a lot about resilience. And, and what it means. Yeah, and what it means. Yeah. Um, what In what sense are you using it in your context? I think that's one of those words that can mean a number of things. Mm, it could mean returning to a stable status, or it could mean being capable of, you know, coping, and it, you're, it, then resilience becomes your coping capacity. Mm. Um, that's how I like to look at it. Mm -hmm. It's dealing with vulnerabilities, but being able to face them. Mm -hmm. mm. And in this role, are you going out and you're meeting people and you're getting data and, mm -hmm. and that's part of what you're doing? Yeah, that's part of it. Yeah. yeah. And you look at, for example, adaptation pathways. How do you prepare for an uncertain future, really? Mm -hmm. um, but a future where you know natural disasters, natural hazards are going to, to be a part of your daily life. Mm -hmm. um, and climate change has an impact on that. And then there's, as we sometimes say, cascading impacts around you on your life mm -hmm. um, and on your decisions, really. Mm. How can you s just prepare for that? Yeah. Mm. And what exactly are you meaning when you're talking about climate change? Mm -hmm. it, it has to do with the temperatures, For example, ice melting, yep. those sorts of yeah, yeah, yeah. things. Those, it, those things, yeah. 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 Temperature changes, changes in rain pattern, mm -hmm. different storms. Um, as you said, glaciers melting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, there's obviously it's quite a hot topic. You know, mm. is there any climate change at all? Some people would say there's not. Is that uh, something that you've, I guess, had thoughts on and, you know, like looking <laughs> yeah. at the data as a scientist, you know, 
50 years ago it was like yeah. this and today it's yeah. like this and historically we can look back and know that 2000 years ago or whatever you know yeah. 5000 years ago there was this pattern and things yeah. like that yeah you can see that humans have accelerated mm. um the natural variation in in climatic shifts mm-hmm. and changes so to me it's quite obvious but i understand that skepticism is maybe a healthy way of protecting yourself from an inconvenient truth mm. <laughs> so yeah <laughs> yeah I, i i get it you know but it's it's a shame because as soon as there's one person saying but is it really true right a lot of people go ah oh, maybe not and maybe that means i don't have to face it right. i don't have to accept it as yeah. a truth yeah yeah it's a fascinating topic for sure i actually think the words that you're using like resilience and how do you cope with change and things it's like let's put on different lenses and mm-hmm. think about technology change and mm-hmm. disruption you mm-hmm. know that word is overused maybe but in my context because i work as a lawyer one of the things that lawyers are afraid of is that there's going to be lawyer robots one day mm-hmm. that will answer the mm-hmm. legal question and they won't need lawyers mm-hmm. i actually personally i'm not that worried because i feel like a lawyer can always provide a personalized service oh, yeah. and that actually the automation and all of the efficiencies which are coming and mm-hmm. we see them more and more that actually hopefully is going to free me up to do oh, yes. the more interesting things because i frankly don't enjoy typing in somebody's name yeah. five times in a document you know and i could be better used brainstorming with a yeah. social enterprise about yeah how they want to do something which legal structure is best for them mm-hmm. you know so i think there's um i guess what i'm saying is the principles that you're talking about i think are transferable mm-hmm. f- like from climate change to what does the future hold for technology yeah. but that's a great example and it's a beautiful way of looking at it mm. it's reframing um a challenge as an opportunity mm. basically and yep. you see the opportunity in changing the way you work yeah um so that's Yeah, that is a good summary for what I do. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to okay. help change uh, <laughs> rephrasing challenge into opportunity. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. No, I like it. Yeah. And um is there anything else that you're involved in that we haven't touched on in terms of science and research because I want to go mm. a different path now, but is there anything else that you maybe wanted to say or or yeah, share maybe, with people? Yeah, maybe maybe just the the idea of connecting society and science. Mm-hmm. That's what I see is happening a lot in New Zealand mm-hmm. and I think that's a great you know it's a great place for for facilitating more and more conversations mm-hmm. from different spheres where people come together um in a collaborative way. Yeah. So yeah, yeah that's yeah. something that we that we do that I do with a lot of colleagues here and yeah. that's great having a good community of people. Yeah. Well, I, I told you before, I've been back for about two years. I'd mm-hmm. been away from New Zealand for 11 years. And yeah. despite my accent, I actually did grow up here in Christchurch. <laughs> so it's been fun to come back and realize that there's a community of of younger generation, I guess, who are connecting. And, and we were talking before we started recording of some mutual friends. Yeah. And, you know, it's a small place where is small there place. is. But I actually feel really encouraged by that because I feel like there's a you know the old phrase sort of iron sharpening iron mm-hmm. you know like i can be challenged by you and what you're doing and you can be challenged by me mm-hmm. and what i'm doing mm-hmm. even though i'm acting in you know the social enterprise legal yeah. structures yeah. very different to climate yeah. change but that we could bounce off each other you know but you know in in my in an ideal world i think it is not separate mm. and 
um, you know, I'm also working on this one project where we look at integration. Right. And that's um, organizational development, but that's also integration in general. And okay. how can we facilitate that? How can we foster that? How can we encourage people to collaborate? I see. And that would be you and me. That would be a number of people. Yeah. It could be anybody. Yeah. Um, and what's the answer? <laughs> <laughs> well, as I, I, I told you before, I'm organizing an event, for example, which is called The Next Generation of Influencers, um, together with three colleagues. And we just basically thought if we give people a safe space, where they can have conversations with mm -hmm. a number of people from mm -hmm. different fields. This is a great way of innovating, I you know, see. hackathons, all kinds of occasions where you can come together and talk, mm. um, bounce of ideas yep. without an end point. That's something that I find very, very important. I'm not going to tell you this is where you need to get to, but I'm mm. giving you the flexibility to move there yep. or to move someplace entirely different. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so creating platforms and opportunities for that to happen, yep. rather than silos yep. of. Because oh, let's yeah. face it, silos, we you know yeah. if you end up with a bunch of scientists who all talk the same oh, God. and use the same acronyms, and they've talked to each other for probably, years, yeah, <laughs> known each other for all it's these probably years. not going to have that much innovation, right? Yeah. Whereas if you can yeah. get a bit of cross fertilization, absolutely, and, yeah. And I mean, it does feel safe, and we all know this. If you talk to the people you know, you feel safe. Yeah, you have your circle, friends, your network. Yeah, but that might not be the inspiring conversation that yes. gets you through the next couple of years and inspires you to do something that you haven't done before, yeah, which yeah. makes you feel alive much yeah. more than just doing the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, yeah, I agree. <laughs> I'm helping organize a conference in Wellington at Tepapa. Yeah. And as we're recording this, um, it's going to be in two months in April. Mm. And originally it was going to be a conference kind of devoted to lawyers yeah. and legal stuff, talking yeah. about charities oh. and charity law. And then um, I was talking with uh, Sue Barker, who's one of the people organizing it, and we were thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could get accountants to come yeah. and lawyers and accountants together at the same conference rather than having different... And then it was it was going to be a one-day conference, and then it was two days, and we were going to have law on one day, accounting on the next day. Then we thought, let's actually merge them so that we don't just get the accountants coming to mm -hmm. one day and the lawyers coming to the next day. We're actually mixing it up so they yeah. can come to both. And then what's happened is it's actually opened up to say, actually, charities come, practitioners yeah. come, regulators come. And so it's become this like much bigger thing. Mm -hmm. um, and hopefully what we're hoping is that there will be this chance to cross fertilize yeah. and yeah. kind of, you know, challenge yeah. each other. So. It's just sorry to take so much no, time to explain great. it, but no, it's just an example of yeah, it is. you know what you're talking about. If more of us could do that, mm -hmm. and the thing I love about this podcast is I actually don't know who's listening right now, <laughs> but it might be that somebody is planning a conference and thinking yeah. maybe I should yeah. get a nuclear scientist to come yeah. in and talk to us about yeah. you know something random that we don't know anything about. So. Or yeah, they want good. to be part of the conversations. Yeah. You know, that's something that I, I think if there are open conversations, open platforms, and yep. not just these closed groups, yep. who knows what yep. we could come up with. There's more potential, isn't oh, there? Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, we we talked about having artists yeah. um, at these conferences as well. And we're going to have artists. There'll, there'll be an exhibition at the exchange. Yeah. Because I think art has a lot to say mm. on 
for example, land and water, mm. which is the issue that we're talking about mm-hmm. for that particular event. I see. Yeah. So, talking Art to somebody, has a way of summarizing yeah. complex matters to visual or oh, yeah. uh, some other way, doesn't yeah. it? That's actually the path that I wanted to go down next. So let's oh, go good. there <laughs> because <laughs> we've talked. We've kind of done um, your current role and what you're doing, which yeah, has yeah, been yeah. really fascinating, and I. I didn't expect to talk about transnational sovereignty and oh, other right, things. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, no, no, it's all good. <laughs> it's good. We were talking before we started recording about poetry. Mm. And I just wonder if you could describe a little bit about poetry as an entry point to thinking about art. And then we'll just talk a little bit about art. So mm. when did you first realize that you enjoyed poetry and also that you enjoyed writing it? Mm, I think when I was a teenager, maybe. Mm-hmm. Before that, I'd been acting and singing um, already but I, I I didn't write poems yeah <laughs> maybe stories but poems came later yeah yeah because they're a great way of finding imagery mm-hmm. um, giving words weight you know weighing up a word like you would pick a fruit mm. um, and feeling its texture yeah and associating something with this one single phrase yes i think that's beautiful yeah. a beautiful way of capturing part of your thinking and a lot of your soul mm. so yeah i often well i'm sure everyone will agree with this but if you can say in one line what could take a page mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. isn't that better that is, <laughs> yes absolutely and usually those sorts of phrases or lines that that actually make it into popular culture as well. Mm-hmm. You know, they've just got something that captures mm-hmm. a thought. But it also invites, and that's what I like, it's a sentence maybe that captures what could be said on a page. Mm. But it also, because of that, it invites different perspectives on that one sentence. And that's something that I find mm. beautiful. If mm. a writer can actually write a poem and it means something it triggers something to within, within different people. Yes. That's yeah. beautiful. Different reactions, right? And, oh, yeah. Um, and it's very different to, I think it started maybe, you know, now that I think about it a little bit more, maybe started with music because mm. I, in my band, we wrote our own songs. And, and I think when you sing something, then it becomes quite obvious what you meant. Right. And... I didn't really like that because I, even though it might not seem like that, I'm quite shy. Mm-hmm. So talking about my feelings and singing about them, that was so scary. And right. writing poetry means that I could write about my feelings, but I didn't have to be explicit. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's great. So the arts and creativity, that's a big part of who you are as well, mm-hmm. isn't it? Yeah. And I, I want it to be a big mm. part and. It's always been a bit of a, a dance, I think. Mm. Um, and it seemed like there were different worlds and I couldn't really connect them. Um, so being here and working in a more creative way, that was so important. Mm. I remember, you know, when I applied for this position um, in my interview, I asked them how creative can I be in the way I do research and the way I communicate my research? And they said, you can do whatever you want to do. And that was the right answer. I think that's when I said, okay, I'm going to do this. Mm. I'm going to (laughs) jump. So it's a relatively new thing then that you're able to integrate that? Yeah, because before that I had a position as a lecturer. I Mm. was working on an EU project on gender equality. I was writing a blog on sustainable projects and also working with different artists writing poetry on freedom and loneliness. So it was different spheres of my life 
and I couldn't really bring them together, not not in a meaningful way. And mm. here I feel like I can, for example, invite artists to talk about water. Mm. Yeah. So that's it comes awesome. back basically we're talking about different things but it's the same thing isn't it you know the mm. the idea of integrating different oh, yeah. ways of thinking yes. even within an individual as well yeah. and that, seeing the value of that yeah taking the time to listen mm. that's something that i think a lot of people don't do mm. <laughs> often <laughs> enough yeah well, it feels like there's lots of different strands to your life, but you're trying, <laughs> you're trying your best, and to I, braid them. I, yeah, braid them, thread them, mm. weave them together, which is a, uh, which is great. Yeah, it only works yeah. because of all these people, you know, yeah. that are part of that. Yeah, and just thinking about the this this podcast is called Talking Purpose, so mm. I think it's it's woven all through, even though we haven't used the word purpose. But can yeah. you just describe what does that word mean for you now in the context of what you're doing? Hmm. That's a that's a really big question. Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to go to the second hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Purpose. Um I think looking at what I'm doing, it's it's probably basically exploring supporting structures mm -hmm. for society, for people, for planets, for the environment. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, and I love the way because we've touched on so many different topics, it's been amazing and just hearing your energy for each of them is is very encouraging yeah it's really good how can people connect with some of the things that you've talked about today because yeah. there might be people who say yeah. i want to oh, know yeah, more absolutely. um what would be the best way for them to either connect with you or with the different things mm. that you've you've There's mentioned different websites the artist group is called illusia mm -hmm. um, oh, that's great mm. well what we'll do in the in the episode underneath the description there's mm. a place where i can write show notes mm. so we can put links so we'll cool. work together and get yeah, links to all these nice. things and if people are interested they can find it and click and mm -hmm. and find out more yeah yeah well franca it's been great to have you on the podcast i've really enjoyed talking with you and yeah, um all the diverse topics so thanks um, for the questions yeah that's fine <laughs> yeah no it was fun i love these it's very natural conversations so yeah. you know we're letting other people listen in but we've had a great interaction so yeah. it's been really fun yeah. so i just want to say thank you for your time and um appreciate you coming on and chatting yeah. with me yeah thanks for having me <laughs> no problem I really enjoyed the diversity of that conversation with Franca and how we were able to discuss so many different topics ranging from poetry to transnational sovereignty to climate change. I hope you enjoyed it as well. Next week we'll be speaking with Leighton Evans, who's the chief executive of the Rata Foundation. Here's an excerpt from the interview with him. One mentor of mine, he described it as, well, if you make a lot of money, what are you making it for? Mm -hmm. And I think you know, that, that's a good question. Mm -hmm. you know, how do we leave things better than when we got here? Mm. And so that's probably driven yeah, the, the latter half of my career, really, to date. Well, I do hope you can join me for that upcoming episode. And don't forget, there's about 30 other interviews in the back catalogue as well. So you might want to check those ones out. Until next time.